Well, Julia Childish, your experiment this week is an unwanted, uncalled for, unnecessary sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man, War of the Colossal Beast. But first, a little musical nightmare from the heart of whiteness. Bon die. time we watched season three episode 19 war of the colossal beast with the short mr b natural in which a 60 foot man eats taco beelzebub with mr b natural <laughs> but first we've got some follow-up okay we're still sort of weirdly timed in terms of the cadence of when we recorded when we put things out but we have a bunch of follow-up from a couple episodes ago because we're speaking to you from the future no no from the past (laughs) the very past (laughs) but we have some follow-up from a few episodes ago because wow i did not realize that our most controversial topic in a long time would be pickles i mean I knew it was going to be the case. Come on. Everybody has their own opinions about food. Actually, I was surprised that pickles was more controversial than how gross people perceive British food to be. But that's okay. Yeah. No, in our Discord with uh, our Patreon supporters, uh, wow, (laughs) the conversation around pickles lit off. And and you could even see people sort of responding in real time as they were listening to the episode, being like, oh, no, oh, no, you're not going to mention pickled eggs. Oh, no, you mentioned pickled eggs. (laughs) That's true. That was lots of fun. (laughs) It was so good. It was so good. But we did get one other message that I wanted to mention. Listener Emma wrote in to say... Transgender women take medicine that causes a sodium deficiency, so we stereotypically love pickles. I go through a couple of jars a week. I had pickled avocado recently, and it was wonderful. I also like pickled carrots, pickled baby corn, and pickled garlic. Pickled avocado sounds amazing, Chris. I know, doesn't it? That sounds amazing. Also, this is a stereotype I did not know about. I didn't either. And I went a-googling, and it seems to indeed be the case. Not that I didn't trust Emma, but uh, I do like to check these things. Mm -hmm. And then I asked a few uh, trans friends of mine, and they reported interesting food cravings and definitely knew about the pickle thing. But I don't think any of them had a special pickle cravings, but did have other food cravings. So How interesting. Is it related to the hormones in the way that, like, pregnant ladies are purported to want, like, pickles and ridiculous things as well? I believe yes. But, it, I mean, the specific hormones and so forth might be different. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Nor have either of us uh, transitioned between genders, so we don't have the experience of this. But I have been pregnant, and I don't remember having weird cravings while I was pregnant. So maybe I just didn't have some of the surges and hormones that other people do. Well, everybody's experience is different from one person to another. So there it is. Exactly. Plus, you naturally eat a lot of pickles, so you wouldn't even notice. Oh, well, I, there is that, of course. And I i mean, my blood pressure alone can attest that I do not skimp on my salty foods. So there's <laughs> that. <laughs> we also got one other letter from devoted listener Marty, who wrote in after our conversation on Braille. Mm-hmm. And wrote in uh, and sent along some photos of the Braille books that are for sale in the bookstore that he works at. 
a whole shelf of them. Nice. Yeah. Which immediately got me thinking, first off, that's super nice, and it's great to have a bookstore that has you know something for everyone or as many people as they can. But then I thought, wow, browsing must be tricky. Yeah, yeah. It still seems like you must you must ask for things or call ahead or something, right? Like, do you have X, Y, Z? Yes. And also, they didn't have any printing on the covers either. So it's not like it was that easy to tell if you're a sighted person what the book was what. Oh, how so interesting. It's a whole interesting world. I don't even know if people typically buy books in Braille or if they just get them from libraries, which I think is a more common way of doing it. But I don't know. I don't either. Anyway, thank you, listeners. You guys send us the best emails and messages, and it's always a delight to see them. And wow, wow, that got a lot of that got a lot of feedback. <laughs> Let's see how much feedback we get from this episode in a couple episodes when we start talking about it. <laughs> and talk about today's movie. <sighs> the movie. All right, we can do it. This time we watch season three, episode 19, War of the Colossal Beast. But first, a short called Mr. B Natural. Do you like music? Sure, we all do. And so wouldn't you like it if the personification of music itself magically appeared in your bedroom one day? Well, this is exactly what happens to 1950s middle schooler Buzz. Buzz is terminally awkward, but he thinks it would be awfully keen to learn an instrument like the cool kids in the school band. To make sure Buzz gets over his insecurities, Music itself appears in his room in the form of an androgynous person in tights with the name of Mr. B. Natural. Mr. B is... a lot. I guess they were aiming for... bubbly, but they end up with some kind of cocaine-helium-theater kid vibe. Like I said, it's a lot. Anyway, Buzz is somehow not all that freaked out by this enthusiastic music demon, and Mr. B is able to make a sale. For, as we soon learn, this was an ad the whole time for some musical instrument manufacturer called Khan. Ah oh, well, don't think about that too much. Let's watch Buzz toot his new horn all day and all night. Don't you want to be like Buzz? Buy a Khan instrument today, or they'll send Mr. B Natural after you, too. The end. And now for our feature presentation, War of the Colossal Beast. Do you remember our old friend Glenn Manning, that intrepid army man who, in an effort to save a pilot of a downed plane, got caught in a plutonium bomb explosion and then exploded in size himself? Yes, it was tragic to watch his mental decline as his body grew and to ultimately see him fall to his death off Hoover Dam in the preceding movie. But if he did die, why couldn't they find his remains? And why do all these deliveries of food keep going missing? Trucks and trucks worth. Why do these drivers go into shock, screaming about a giant? Circumstances suggest our former friend has reappeared south of the border. Thankfully, through international cooperation and the determined love of a sister, Glenn has been found. Though 60 feet tall, he has stealthily found his way from Las Vegas to Mexico, perhaps hoping that, like Vegas, the things that happen in Mexico stay in Mexico. Then again, 
Maybe he's not thinking at all, just driven on by the animal need to eat. For when we catch a glimpse of Glenn, we see his face has become horribly disfigured. He's lost an eye and has loads of scar tissue on his face. In fact, the face must have borne the brunt of his fall from the dam, as no other part of him seems to be changed. Well, except now he grunts a lot. No more complete sentences from him mourning the transformation that no mortal sin deserves. Oh no, his tragic decline of the mind has made him full caveman. Not that his sister will ever admit it. She thinks he's still able to be saved, and she convinces a team of Major Nelsons to help Glenn. They tranquilize him with doped-up bread, capture him, and transport him back to the States, where all levels of government argue someone else should be put in charge of his rehabilitation in a classic governmental pass-the-buck-around scene. Los Angeles wins the Glen Roulette, and he is housed in a hangar while scientists try to determine whether he is human or monster. Or both. Maybe he's both. Of course, Glenn escapes. Of course, he terrorizes Los Angeles. Of course, this includes putting children in danger, because I think the film thinks he's a monster. Or maybe the film thinks he thinks he's a monster. I mean, he did spend the whole movie before this lamenting that he was becoming a monster, and so this seems like the inevitable payout? And though his sister tries to humanize him, ultimately the world can never understand a 60-foot man with a disfigured face. Glenn grabs hold of electrical wires and, through incredible pain, dies, disappears, leaving no trace. The End. Meanwhile, on the Satellite of Love, Joel and the bots are mixing up a bunch of prefixes, root words, and suffixes to make new Americanized versions of Mexican food, like the Bel Grande Cheesy Beefy Blue Steak Taco. As Joel points out, distorting another country's culture into a kooky appetizer is just the American way. The invention exchange is also very American, as Dr. Forrester shoots Frank with a breakfast bazooka and Joel and the bots load the between-meal mortar with explosive Twinkies. Kablooey! After watching Mr. B Natural, Tom and Crow debate whether Mr. B Natural is a man or a woman. Crow thinks she looks and sounds like a woman, especially inasmuch as she has breasts. Tom wants to break down all the barriers and celebrate everyone's gender self-expression. Also, he thinks Mr. B Natural doesn't really even have breasts anyways. During a break from the movie, Joel is wearing a big head, and he and the bots are working on a theme song for the guy with the big head, when they're interrupted. Glenn Manning is back, looming above the satellite as huge as ever. Glenn is taking a cue from Adam West and complaining about not being cast in the sequel. Poor Glenn. A little later, and Joel is sitting behind the KTLA name plaque, like the newscaster in the movie does. He declares himself to be James Unguentine Kitla, and he makes a series of increasingly unlikely predictions about the future. In the future, the average American will consume 15 times their weight in snow. Wow! And after the movie, Joel tries to feed the bots some chemically-laced bread, and then reads a letter from some people in prison. Joel gives them a solidarity salute. 
Also, Glenn gets to read a letter, which looks very, very tiny in his big, big hands. How adorable. What do you think, sirs? Man, Chris, this movie was kind of a bummer of a movie. It was, but nobody watches this episode for the movie. They watch it for the short, which is probably the most watched thing that MST3K <laughs> has ever produced. Oh my gosh, I find that super hard to believe. I think that the hired shorts are my favorite thing, but... I mean, I'm not saying best or most beloved by fans, but the short that most people have talked about and seen, especially outside the fandom, is Mr. B Natural. Many have argued. We don't have hard numbers on this. But Mr. B Natural is, in a sense, the Manos of the shorts. It is <laughs> the one that people talk about. It is the one that you're most likely to know because of this TV show and the one that you're most likely to have seen because of this TV show. I can't imagine watching this outside of the TV show. Yeah, that's true. It's, it is a little hard to imagine being in you know 1957 or so and being in a classroom and having this short played for you. Oh, boy. Whereas so many any of the other shorts like the personal hygiene ones, like have good personal hygiene so you look like everybody else on the college campus. You know, those sorts of things. I totally remember watching things like that inside of my classes, right? Those don't feel super foreign, uh, but this one did. It didn't feel like something I would have ever seen inside of my own school. And that's, I think, what makes it so special, right? Like It's like Manos, where, as they say in the opening to Manos, like, most people have never seen a film like Manos. <laughs> you, you can't imagine, like, stumbling upon a bad movie at a blockbuster or in a theater and it being Manos-like. No. And similarly, you can't really no. imagine seeing a short in school and it being this weird thing. Although, there were some people who like, campaigned in order for Manos to be improved, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar things actually happened with Mr. B. Natural, where people went on the hunt for more copies of the <laughs> film in order to get a better print of it and so forth. And, like, people care about it. This was an obscure short before it got onto MST3K. Yeah, well, I can imagine. I mean... It's a little disturbing, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's really good. And they do such a good job of sort of wringing out all the weird, weird sexual tension that's going on in this film. Yes. Well, are they wringing it out or are they rather inserting it when it wasn't there? Because I don't know if there was any tension between any of the characters. Knew your father, I did. Knew your father, I did. Hey, leave my father out of this. Ooh. That's not them saying it. Yeah. That's her. Slash him. Slash whatever. Apparently in the accompanying brochure that would be sent to schools along with a short. Stop. There was an accompanying brochure? There often were with educational shorts to tell the teacher how to prepare it or what to expect or what questions to ask afterwards. But yeah, uh, it does have uh, descriptions of Mr. B. Natural and uses he, him pronouns. So oh, okay, there you go. Well, in the 50s, they weren't real ambiguous with the use of Mr., so that's not all that surprising. Well, exactly. And the sketch that occurs afterwards in which our two bots discuss whether or not Mr. B. Natural is a man or a woman is, you know, when they say it was a different time and this is a product of its time. Yeah, yeah. This is what I think about. Mm -hmm. 
this is the level of what feels now like very poor discussion around gender, where even though, you know, Tom is like, you know, let your freak flag fly. Anything can happen. It's all good, baby. Sure. But Tom is still arguing that Mr. B Natural is a man. Yeah. Yeah. Tom is arguing that Mr. B Natural is a man, which is which is great, because that seems to be how Mr. B Natural is identifying. So that's... Sure. That's cool. Well, it's at least how Con Instruments is identifying Mr. B Natural. Let's <laughs> not let's not impose gender on Mr. B Natural cuz he he she they they never say. No, that's true. But to be fair, it is a fictional thing created okay. by the Con Corporation. It's true. But yes, even though Tom is arguing all sorts of fun things that I might generally sign up for, he still gets like specifically hung up on the breast question. Yeah. He still is like, well, no, there are no breasts. And even if there were, well, mm-hmm. he seems to think maybe that Crow would have a point there. I don't know. That feels very 1991 or two or whenever this episode sure. came out. But I also wouldn't say that it's very, you know, 30 years ago. Ago without also mentioning that there are TV shows that have recently had gender ambiguous people on them and had the characters have active discussions about what gender they actually are. I'm thinking specifically of a episode of Bones that had a person from uh, Japan who had come over to work with the main character inside of uh, the main set and everyone was talking, is it a he, is it a she? And they eventually go up and quote unquote test to find out by sending a hot lady to arouse the person. And it's like, seriously, that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't 30 years ago. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We still have a long way to go. (laughs) Oh, sure. But I I guess what I'm saying is that this is a sketch which I find not great, but it does feel specific to its time. It doesn't feel like, I don't know, maybe this, maybe I'm being biased here. It doesn't feel like the transphobic sections in the incredibly strange creatures, yada, 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 like Mm -hmm. that, which feels just sort of, even then they should have known better than to do all this. And you said that this is, this is one that they redid, right? This particular short, but when they redid the short, they didn't do segments for it, right? Because it wasn't part of a larger episode. Right. I guess I'm just wondering how the cast and crew would now approach a segment where they wanted to discuss gender in this way. Like, it'd be interesting to see them update it. That's all. Well, when we do the uh, revised version of the short, maybe we'll see then. We'll see. I guess we do have to talk about the movie part, though. I suppose. This movie, oh boy, it's not as good as the original. No, well, I mean, it has absolutely no of no um, redeeming features. (laughs) Sure. I mean, it has a really cool face thing going on, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they, they got to have lots of trucks on a mountainside. That must have been really cool for everybody. I mean, it's like it's like every seven-year-old dream to have just a bunch of Tonka trucks on the side of a sandy mountain. But at the same time, like, there was no... I, one of the things I remember us talking about in our last episode was the tension of what was happening to Glenn and how he was dealing with it or not dealing with it and and feeling like he had been punished far more than any person would have deserved. And none of that's here, right? Like brain gone until like the last five minutes of the movie where he finally recognizes his sister and then commits suicide. I mean, it's just... 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You're right. It's just like big giant guy running around freaking out people. And I don't know. Yeah. When I was watching it, I was also thinking about that conversation we'd had and was also kind of hoping that maybe there was something there. And I guess like that issue of being so far gone that you decide to take your own life was a little bit there, but it didn't do a good job exploring it. No, certainly seeing this as an episode alone or seeing this as a movie without having seen the first one, you have none of that, Yeah, right? You have nothing like that. There's no reason, there's no even reason for him to have a name in this movie other than he's connecting with a character from the movie before, which is unfortunate. Had this been like a 20-minute addendum to the movie that we saw last time, it might have had a lot more punch to it or something, a lot more gravitas. I don't know. Sure. Even if they'd been able to get the the same actor to play Glenn. Sure. But what are you going to do? Yeah. um, The thing that this movie, of course, is most remembered for now is that final scene when he grabs onto the electrical cables, a transformer, which causes it to burst and explode, which is suddenly in color. Yes. So here's the thing. This movie came out the year after The Amazing Colossal Man. It came out in 1958. And a month before this movie came out, a different movie came out that you might have heard of called Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Oh. Have you ever seen that movie? I haven't seen it, but I've certainly heard of it. And you've seen the poster, I imagine. Yes, I've certainly. In the same way that I have seen the poster for Barbarella, but never seen the movie. Same thing here. (laughs) So here's what I'm going to tell you. First off, see Barbarella immediately. It's a really great fun movie. You have to watch it. It's so good. That is not true about Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. The poster is so much better than the movie itself. Although if you watch it, it's not like the worst. It's certainly better than War of the Colossal Beast. (laughs) It's interesting because it is another, you know, somebody gets irradiated and becomes huge movie, and this time it's a woman. And she's a rich society woman, and her husband is cheating on her. And it's all about that sort of difficulty of being kind of gaslit about the about the husband and the husband's new uh, lover plotting to murder her or get her locked away or something so that wow. he can divorce her and take all her money and all that stuff. And like, oh, because of course she's the one with the money. Yeah. It's yeah. her money. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's very specifically her money. And when she sees the alien that causes her to get irradiated, it's on the news. Like, everybody knows who she is. She is that famous. Yeah. So, anyway, there's some good bits to it. Um, you want to guess how she dies in the end? Um, I'm going to guess she dies in the same way as Glenn, because why else would you be bringing it up? Yep. Uh. <laughs> Saw that. was like, oh, wow, isn't that convenient? Yes. Now, that movie doesn't go into color for that one scene, but... Um, it was a good gimmick, that's for sure. It was a good gimmick. It was not quite Wizard of Oz. No. Oh, gracious, no. <laughs> Mr. B. Natural wants you to... Buy an instrument for your kid, ideally one from the Con Corporation, but uh, they want you to buy an instrument for your kid. Or if you're a kid, you should get an instrument because that will make you cool. Yeah, cool. When you were in elementary <laughs> school or middle school, were you cool? Did you play in the school band? Um, 
I was not cool. And entirely separate from that, I, I was also not in a band. Those two things have no overlap in my mind. But um, my elementary school, my middle school, and even my high school had absolutely no band program. They had no what? choir program. They had no band program. There was nothing available through my school. And my parents certainly didn't push me towards uh, learning an instrument, which is really a shame. I kind of kind of wish I had had more exposure to it. Yeah. You had to wait till you met me and then I pushed you towards Exactly, exactly. And still I'm, you know, merely a trained monkey. But clearly you had a much greater musical education as a kid. Was it through your public school? It was partially, yeah. Um, We did the thing that a lot of schools have done which is to say we started with recorders, little plastic cheap recorders screaming out and doing Christmas concerts and so forth when I was, I don't know, seven-ish, eight-ish, I can't remember. And then after that, you could graduate to more, let's say, real instruments. Mm -hmm. Recorders are real. There are very nice recorders out there. There are great recorder players. There's a really great YouTube channel about recorders. However, in the hands of kids made out of plastic, it's just awful. Um, I decided when it was time to switch to a proper orchestral instrument to pick up the clarinet because I think I was lazy and I felt like it was the one closest to a recorder. Yeah, that was weird. Um, I played it for a year or two and I remember, I I may have shared this on pod before, but I don't don't know anymore. Who who can say? But I remember (laughs) one day I was watching Benny Goodman on the TV. He just randomly, my mother had it on and I turned and asked her, what instrument is he playing? And she said, it's a clarinet. It's the same instrument you play. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't say this, but I thought, now, wait a minute. When he plays this instrument, it's going, and when I play it, it goes, no one had told me what a clarinet was supposed to sound like. Oh, yeah. And how would you know? How would you know? Did you not have a teacher who played the clarinet? I had a teacher who was teaching me clarinet. Clarinet was not their main instrument, obviously. It was an elementary school music teacher. Sure, they had plenty yeah. of things to take care of. I'm sure he knew what a clarinet was supposed to sound like, and I'm sure he wasn't getting paid enough to tell me. Oh, ouch. <laughs> I mean, if he's trying to teach a room full of elementary kids every single instrument in the entire orchestra, I, c- I could see how that would be difficult. Like, if it's anything like the classes that I see in the public schools that my kid goes to, if there's a music class at all, there's like 70 kids inside of the room and they might all have different instruments. Yeah. And how do you teach a class like that and give each instrument, let alone each kid, individual instruction in it? It's hard to teach instruments. It's hard to teach music. I reckon so. I have to say, the thing that in many ways probably gave me more musical education was the fact that we, for reasons I do not understand or have any context for, we had an upright piano in my house when I was a kid. Oh. Somehow, despite the fact that we were not at all with money. Mm -hmm. But there was one there. It uh, it was missing some of the ivory or ivory-esque material from some of its keys, but it was there. It was a little battered up, but it was there. And my mother had just enough to teach me, just enough to be able to plunk out a few notes and sort of pick out melodies on sheet music. And like I remember being super young and like five or six and just sitting down and playing on it and playing around with it and just exploring it. And that sort of thing is a lot more how I've approached music in general. 
both to my credit and maybe to my uh, peril. You know, <laughs> I, I never took proper guitar lessons. I just saved up some money and bought a guitar when I was 15-ish. And the way I play guitar still sort of reflects that. Is that I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just going to do what feels right. Yeah, it certainly seems like learning an instrument definitely needs a lot of individual instruction, but also a lot of personal drive, personal determination to be able to learn it. And if you're missing one of those things, it seems like a real difficult task, but definitely got to hand it out there to people who attempt to teach music, to people who don't actually know how to play yet, because it's got to be really rough to guide someone on that journey. Yeah, although I bet it's also really fun. In some ways, yes. If you're not like forced to do it against your will for 12 hours a day or whatever, to kids who don't actually want to learn. Sure. Although I've gone to, you know, seventh grade concerts and I love hot cross buns as much as the next person. <laughs> I just, I don't know how many times I could handle that year after year after year. So like kudos to those who can do it. I'm glad they're out there. It's a really important thing to have available to kids. And to adults, my husband was a reasonably well-trained uh, classical piano player until he went to college, basically, and decided not to become professional at it and spend all his life at it. And he just, about a year ago, started taking lessons again. And now, obviously, he's not learning from scratch, but like it's been really wonderful for him to get to use that part of his you know, brain and his artistry again. And I'm very happy that he's just learning new pieces because I've lived with him for well over 10 years now. And it's been the same eight pieces the whole time. Oh, They're all great. Are you tired of hot but, cross buns too, Chris? I mean, it's like a Greek piece, but anything played <laughs> enough times is going to be hot cross buns. No, it's true. There was so many times inside of this episode where they were referencing, like, predicting the future and this whole Kitla thing. And I have to admit, like, I... I had no idea why um, they moved into a predicting the future thing, but you know why they moved into a predicting the future thing. So can you explain it to me? I don't actually fully know why they did that. Oh. But I will say there's a sketch where Joel pretends to be James Unguentine Kitla. I am James Unguentine Kitla, and I predict your future. KTLA, which was the name of the still extant TV station where... An actual news reporter was in the movie, like an actual KTLA news reporter played the news reporter in the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, he just got really excited about KTLA and pronouncing it Kitla. Kitla! And then he did this sketch about predicting the future, about Kitla predicts the future, which everybody seems to agree is a Criswell imitation. And I guess it is. I can't think of any other person it might be. The predictions are like Criswell predictions, but his affect seems all wrong. But whatever. Let's assume that's right. Okay. Let's talk about Criswell. Do you know Criswell? I don't. No. Not at all. That is a shame. Many listeners are shocked at this because Criswell is near and dear to the heart of many Misties, although I don't think he is in any Misted film. Oh. He was, however, part of the coterie of... Edward D. Wood Jr. Oh. And he is perhaps most famous for providing the opening and closing monologues to Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh. He also appears in the Edward film uh, that Tim Burton did. Um, so hold on. So is Criswell the 
voice that he's imitating or the style of making predictions of the future? It's the style of predicting the future, because that is what Criswell did. His voice was a little bit different from what Joel's doing, so that's why I'm not 100% sure that this is actually meant to be a Criswell prediction. But nevertheless, Criswell. Ah, Criswell. (laughs) He was a real character. Um, He was born in Indiana in 1907, and he says that he started making predictions basically as soon as he could talk. But he said a lot of things, and most of them were not true, both about (laughs) himself and his past and about the future. He did write some predictions in his high school yearbook. So he got the predicting bug early. Decided he was the Nostradamus of the Midwest or whatever. Exactly. Except he got out of the Midwest as soon as he could. He started working in radio and filling the airtime with his wild predictions, and they became more and more popular. He moved to LA around 1940 and started becoming friends with all sorts of Hollywood people, including Mae West and Ed Wood and a bunch of others, some of whom he was trying to get money off of to launch various doomed theater projects and so forth. Isn't that what Hollywood people are good for, getting money off of to do your pet project? Yeah, you're supposed to be a little more subtle about it than he might have been. Sure, sure. (laughs) But yes. And he was in Plan 9 from Outer Space, where he delivered the opening monologue, which was a variation on a monologue that he used in a lot of his appearances. And it goes... Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives, whether we want to or not. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. The future is in your hands, so let us remember the past, honor the present, and be amused at the future. And then he would give predictions on shows such as The Tonight Show which he got invited on quite a bit, both with Jack Parr and then with Johnny Carson. Oh my gosh. Did Johnny Carson do the whole uh, envelope to his head thing with him there? That seems like it's in the same kind of line. Oh, except I guess Chris Well was serious. And of course, Johnny Carson never would have been. So Carmack the Magnificent was apparently based on Criswell. Oh! But actually, Criswell was on the show quite a bit beforehand. And whether or not Criswell was earnest about his predictions is a little hard to say, because many of them are ridiculous (laughs) and (laughs) seemingly intentional. And he didn't really mind if Jack Parr or Johnny Carson would be joking around about them. Like, he was putting on a show, but also he... Seemed to feel like he had the time. I don't know. It's a little hard to say. Yeah. It seems It seems like if you're going to be making predictions about the future and you're going to get on something like a Johnny Carson, you really do have to at least portray earnestness, even if you aren't serious while doing it. Well, the other thing you could do is be right. That's very, very true. And you can't be right all the time if you're predicting the future. No. He, he would say that his predictions were, quote, around 87% accurate. Hmm. That's what he would say, and therefore it must be true. Who kept the data on that? Come on! Well, he did get one prediction notoriously correct when he was on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr in March of 1963. So take your mind back. And he said that John F. Kennedy will be prevented by outside forces for running for re-election in 1964. Oh, God. So he got that one right. Um, yeah. I hope he didn't mean to get that one right. Well, it's not like he caused it, but he did. No, 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 no. I wouldn't suggest that. But a lot of his predictions were really meant to be evocative and alluring, right? To get people interested. They wanted to hear wild stuff from him. Wild and ridiculous stuff, along with some things that could possibly be true. Like, you need a little bit of all of it to win over broad audiences on The Tonight Show. So, 
Now it's time for our next segment, Uh Criswell or Not. I'm going (laughs) to read out five predictions, one of which is not an authentic Criswell prediction. And your job is to tell me which of these five predictions is not Criswell's. This is totally not fair. Because when Adam did Tales from the Crypt Keeper with you, you at least had heard the Crypt Keeper more than once. I've never heard Criswell. How am I possibly going to do anything but guess? That's okay. You can at least enjoy the predictions. Number one, I predict that perversion will flood the land beginning in 1970. I predict a series of homosexual cities, small, compact, carefully planned areas, will soon be blatantly advertised and exist from coast to coast. These compact communities will be complete with stores, churches, bars, and restaurants, which will put the olden Greeks and Romans to shame with their organized orgies. You will be able to find them near Boston, Des Moines, Columbus, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, St. Louis, New Orleans, Dallas, and Miami. That seems way too specific. He wasn't that specific, was he? Much thought and planning will be expended in setting up these communities where perversion will parade shamelessly. And all this will be within the law because the perverted will claim they have been discriminated against. The Supreme Court will rule that whatever these consenting adult males or females wish to do, they can. Yeah, no. Come on. So... That one he got basically right. <laughs> in that a lot of those cities now have gay neighborhoods. and A lot of them had it before he said that, though. Chris. Well, that's Come true. On. But, he, you know, they weren't as prominent before 1970, certainly. No, by design. Yeah. Well, it's quite possible that he would know this. He seems sure. to have been, although he was married. Mm-hmm. He does seem to have been part of the gay community when he arrived in L.A., though it also seems like maybe he shunned it later. It's unclear, you know. Who knows? Who can say I wasn't there? I'm not gonna I'm not trying to box him in or define him or anything. So seriously, that was actually one of his predictions. Well, you tell me. He got that specific? Okay. Well, I can't aren't you gonna tell me all five and I have to tell you which one is not? Exactly. And and that was the that's the longest one I'm gonna read to you. Okay. But let's right. move on. Whew. Number two. I predict education will be given to children through the television screen. No personal teachers, but there will be a warden on duty to see that 100% interest is sustained. Later, education memory pills will help give you all the education you can possibly use. And we call those pills Adderall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, this sort of is like uh, true if it's if it's really him. You know, we, when, when people were doing Zoom education and like... They made software to try to ensure that kids' eyes were staring at the screen the whole time? Interesting. So, possible prediction. Okay. Number three. Uh-huh. I predict that Oklahoma will become the most important state in the United States due to the moving of the federal capital from Washington, D.C. to Tulsa. The broad plains and prairies will be a roof above multi-story government buildings constructed wholly <laughs> underground. The largest airports in the world will be constructed in Oklahoma to serve the needs of the new capital of the United States. Oh my gosh, that just sounds like the plot for the book Uglies. Interesting prediction. Tulsa, the new capital of the United States, huh? Yeah, well, you you have to admit, it's in the middle. Is it, though? All right. All right. Number four. Number four. I predict that a refined sealing wax costing you 25 cents a tube will permit you to fill your own cavities in your own teeth. (gasps) Yes, I predict you will soon throw your dentist away and do it yourself. Uh, Ah, sorry. Okay, so become your own dentist. 
That's number four. With a sealing wax. With the sealing wax, because, and I'm sure me, I, I'm assuming we would spell that S E A L, not C E I L. Yes, yes. All right. Exactly. Because when you said sealing wax, I was like, oh, I'm going to wax my ceiling. No, no, no. I'm filling in my cavities. All right. Whew. If your ceiling is too hairy for your liking, you could wax it. But... <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, I predict that future television commercials will be so interesting that the viewers will not go to the toilet during the program. During the commercials, you mean? He says program. Or does he? Or does he? (laughs) I think he means during the entire program. You think that if this was him, that is what he would have If this was him, that is surely what he would mean. (laughs) All right, so I have... um, Gay communities being built throughout the United States. Uh-huh. Education through the TV. Uh, the third one was... Oklahoma. Oklahoma as the new capital. The fourth one was sealing wax, become your own dentist. Uh-huh. And then the fifth one was... TV commercials TV that prevent commercials. everyone from going to the toilet during programming. Okay. Which, I, it feels like... Wow! How the heck did you ever do this with Adam Kripke for or not? This is so hard. Only one of these is fake, right? You only faked up one of them? Only one of these is inauthentic. All right. Um, I don't think that anybody who lives in L.A. would ever think that Tulsa, Oklahoma would become the capital of the United States. So I'm going to say that one. That one is the one that's fake. All right. You sure? No, I'm not. But I'm going to go with that anyway. All right. <laughs> You're correct. It was actually about Wichita, Kansas. Oh, you're kidding me. That's even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't Wichita, Kansas the town that has to be nuclear bombed in Return of the Living Dead? I think that it is. (laughs) We just bombed the future capital. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. All the the government buildings are underground. It's fine. Well, no wonder why they're underground. It's like they knew. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll have a link in the show notes to an AV Club article where I got some of these and to a a YouTube video that has the audio from one of his records. If you want to hear 40 minutes of his mellifluous voice predicting the future, as well as some links to some of his Johnny Carson and Jack Parr Tonight Show appearances. They're all kind of neat and they're all kind of strange. And Criswell is a special boy. It's time for the Shallow 13, 13 tiny tidbits whose very tininess puts them at war with anything colossal. Go, Chris, go. Mr. B Natural is brought to life by Betty Luster. Luster was a dancer and an actor who was, among other things, a regular on the 1950 television game show Sing It Again, in which home viewers would try to recognize songs based on clues that Betty Luster and others would perform. Sort of a precursor to Name That Tune, but with a sort of Twitch livestream element. And middle schooler Buzz Turner was played by Bruce Podwell, whose real-life nickname was Buzz. After hanging around Mr. B. Natural, Buzz grew up to be a theater kid, or specifically, a professor of theater at Tulane University in New Orleans. But even when he directed theater, he often found an excuse to incorporate his favorite instrument, which, as we all know, was... The banjo. Yeah, the banjo. He even managed to work the banjo into his very first production in New Orleans, a setting of Henrik Ibsen's play, Peer Gint. 
In addition to appearing in Mr. B Natural, Buzz also made an appearance as a child on Watch Mr. Wizard, the 1950s version of the children's science show hosted by Don Herbert, a.k.a. Mr. Wizard. Buzz is not the only person to connect Mr. Wizard to MSG3K, however. When the show was brought back in the 80s as Mr. Wizard's World, one of the children featured was a young Christian Malcolm, who Misty's will recognize as Troy from Season 9's The Final Sacrifice. Buzz's dad is played by Buzz's dad, Lester Podewell, who was, in fact, an actor. Some of you may recognize him from a short called Are You Popular? that Riff Tracks covered, but he's had bit parts in all kinds of movies. Look for him playing a homeless man that Bill Murray befriends the next time you watch Groundhog Day. Hey, did you ever stare in fascination at the sheet music that Mr. B. Natural pops out of and wonder what it sounds like, but we're too lazy to learn how to read music? Well, today's your lucky day. Take it away, theme squad. Okay, okay. Let's talk about the movie a little. Sally Fraser plays Joyce Manning, and if she looks familiar, wow, you're really good at distinguishing between 1950s B-movie actresses. But yes, that was her as Peter Graves' wife Joan in It Conquered the World, which we covered back in episode 7. And though Sally Fraser made appearances on several 1950s Western TV shows, including Annie Oakley, Cheyenne, The Gene Autry Show, she never appeared on Bonanza. Russ Bender, who plays Dr. Carmichael, was also in It Conquered the World as Brigadier General James Paddock. Honestly, you let one Corman actor into your film and suddenly you're crawling with them. Rico Alaniz plays Sergeant Luis Murillo, and he managed to claw his way out of this film to have a role in 1960's The Magnificent Seven. Now, sure, he doesn't get to play any one of the, you know, Magnificent Seven, but at least it's a better line on your CV than War of the Colossal Beast. And hey, Rico Alaniz actually was in an episode of Bonanza. (laughs) No, wait, he was in four episodes of Bonanza, and a few episodes of Gunsmoke, and an episode of The Flying Nun. I bet he never had to spend another day thinking about his role in this film. On the other hand, Dean Parkin, the new face of Glenn Manning, only acted in one other film, Bert I. Gordon's The Cyclops, released the year before War of the Colossal Beast. In The Cyclops, Parkin plays The Cyclops, a pilot whose plane crashed in Mexico, where he got he got irradiated, and he, he turned into a 25-foot-tall man with one eye, and... Oh, God, he's wearing, like, a, the same prosthesis he's wearing in this movie. Oh, no. Do I have to watch another film about a person who's the wrong size? No! No! I'm done! And that's time! Well, so, that Shallow 13 turned out to mostly be about, you know, the movies, and we didn't really talk about any of the riffs, so what if we did, like, a couple little segments about some of the riffs in this episode? Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, where should we start? You got? You, is there anything you want to start with? Well, early on in the movie, or not in the movie, early on in the episode, uh, they do a whole segment about um, Americanized Mexican food. Uh, let's start talking with that. Okay. Hey, so one of the foods that they talk about in that sketch is a spiced peachy battered chonga. Ooh. And Crow asks, what the hell is a chonga? Sort of uh-huh. quietly. Do you know what a chonga is? I know what a chimichanga is. It's a deep-fried burrito, but I don't know what a 
chimichanga is. Yeah, a chimichanga is with an A. C-H-A-N-G-A. And that is a deep fried burrito, a chonga, which I, I'm sure they meant a chimichanga. And they just thought chonga was like a, a suffix. Mm-hmm. But a chonga <laughs> is uh, a term that apparently, I, 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 I this is new to me, so I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. But it's a term that became big in Miami to refer to a certain type of sexually promiscuous woman <gasps> or somebody perceived that way. Oh. Often also in a positive way, like... So it's a term that some women might use to describe themselves, I guess. Um, okay. But yeah, I don't think that's what Crow meant. <laughs> no, I wouldn't think that it is. Wow. Um, have you have you encountered any weird takes on Mexican food? I mean, I traveled through the UK uh, in the 90s, probably not dissimilar to the time period that this episode came out. And um, my friend and I decided that we were going to get some Mexican food because we wanted something that kind of reminded us of home, right? Um, And we got guacamole. Uh And it had a lot of pepper in it. Oh, yeah. Not chili pepper, black pepper. That was the only seasoning that was inside of the guacamole. <laughs> and it was I like you were gonna say green pepper. At no, first. no, 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 no. It was <laughs> okay. black pepper. So it was just avocado with black pepper, which is so unlike any sort of understanding of guacamole that I had had up till then. And you know, keep in mind that this is, you know, 20 years before hipsters decided avocado toast was the coolest thing in the world. And so there wasn't a whole bunch of just avocado, pepper, and toast things going on. So it was really it was really weird. It was one of those, like, is this what they think Mexican food tastes like? <laughs> I don't know. Did this happen to you? Well, I, I had a weird experience when I first moved to Canada. This would have been, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago. And I, I was in grad school. I was very poor. I went with a friend of mine to go to a Mexican restaurant. We were debating how much we could spend sort of mentally, not talking about it, but like we were debating whether we wanted a starter. And, you know, the waiter comes over and she's like, hey, you know, would you like anything to start with? And we're just looking at each other. And she says, what about nachos? They're popular. And we were still like, mm, nachos do sound good. But we're like, we're thinking this. We're not saying anything. Yeah. And she goes, oh, nachos. You'd like them. They're like tortilla chips, but oh. with like tomatoes and cheese on them. Oh. <laughs> 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 like, Damn. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know what nachos are. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not trying to guess what nachos are. I'm trying to calculate numbers. I had just ordered flautas. Like, you don't yes. order flautas if you don't know what nachos are. <laughs> Although, how many people do you think that waitress had encountered who had no idea what nachos were? Well, it's very possible because there are not nearly as many Mexicans in Canada, and Mexican food is not as much of a thing as in the United States. So, fair enough. Let's see. What else? Um, there's a recurring bit that I really enjoyed uh, where... They start singing 100 Years of Solitude <laughs> to the tune of 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall. 100 Years of Solitude. Yeah, no, totally. No, they no don't it's sing it like 100 that. Years, they sing 100 Years of Solitude. 100 Years of Solitude. 100 Years, years, of, solitude, 100 years of Solitude. Yeah, take, take, take totally. Take that around. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and then later on, they come back with 52 Years of Solitude. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, that's cause... like the longest commercial break ever if you get through that many years of solitude. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this is a thing that I didn't remember from MSC3K, but like I've done that bit before where you just start singing 100 Years of Solitude like it's 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Mm -hmm. It's a good bit. But it is weird because they're singing it because they're in Mexico. 
So I was thinking about this because I was like, okay, well, I mean, Gabriel Garcia Marquez in the 90s published a book, right? He published News of a Kidnapping. I remember it being a super big deal at the time that I was in college. I bought it. And I think it was one of my entry points into being a reader of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, because I think after I read News of a Kidnapping, that's when I picked up A Hundred Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of Cholera and... Um, some of the and many of his others. Uh, I'm thinking of Autumn of the Patriarch and um, some of the other things that he wrote. Um, but so I was trying to figure out, like, what was it that would have inspired them other than, you know, being able to sing A Hundred Years of Solitude to bring up Gabriel Garcia? Because they bring him up again. Later on, Tom makes a reference to, lo- to love in the time of cholera because he says love in the time of colitis. Yes, which is a good bit, but also not Mexican. <laughs> Yes, no, exactly. And I, but like what was going on because he was a well-known Spanish language author. Yeah, but and he lived in Mexico City in his life. There was a period of time and at least one of his kids was born in Mexico, in Mexico City. So, it's not unheard of, but that seems that seems like deep knowledge on Gabriel. That's what I'm Garcia saying. Like, you're, you're giving you're giving the writers room a lot of credit if you don't think they just didn't go, "Oh, it's Spanish, you know, like Garcia Marquez <laughs> that all the kids love," which is I feel pretty confidently what was going on in the room. Come on, they didn't reference Diego Rivera or or anything like that. I mean, there are many references to Spanish language or to specifically um, Mexican personalities that they didn't make. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was wondering if maybe it, it was even inspired by um, Gar- Garcia Marquez's friendship with Bill Clinton, because apparently Bill Clinton like made a big deal about A Hundred Years of Solitude being one of his favorite novels, and like he became really good friends with him. But again, like Bill Clinton wouldn't have been in office when this episode came out. So, okay, I guess Mexico was the inspiration? Question mark. I'm pretty sure it's Mexico. Oh yeah. God, that's so that's so disappointing. <laughs> Well, it's, as as Jill pointed out, it's the American way. No, that's true. We did just rebrand Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> Great work, everybody. <laughs> no notes. All right. Well, speaking of more American things, uh, <laughs> there's a moment in the film where some of the characters are approaching this like rocky outcropping, this like tiny mountain hill thing. And Joel says, Hey, there's a hard rock cafe over there. They're everywhere now. Which is hysterical to me because if this joke was made today, like the thing that's everywhere now is Starbucks. It's not the Hard Rock Cafe, right? Um, but at the time, it totally, like Hard Rock Cafes, everybody had a shirt of the Hard Rock Cafe logo with, and by everybody, I'm not really saying yeah, everybody, I, but me. like I had, I never had one, but I have eaten at a Hard Rock Cafe. I'm surprised. I don't think I ever have eaten at a Hard Rock Cafe. I don't think so. Well, I don't know why you would have. It's just an American bistro where you're supposed to get burgers. Like, the two guys who founded it founded it in London in the early 70s because they wanted a place in London where they could get a good old-fashioned American burger. There you go. And then it became a hangout for all of these... Um, musicians. And, you know, Eric Clapton decided he was going to donate his guitar to mark his favorite place to sit. And then every, and then they started just displaying memorabilia everywhere. And then they decided, let's open one in the United States. And then they started opening around the world. And so people have like Hard Rock Cafe Mexico City and Hard Rock Cafe 
I don't know, at freaking everywhere. But yeah, I've eaten in a Hard Rock Cafe. I've eaten in one in London, actually. I don't know if it was the original one, but I can't imagine it wouldn't have been. And I ate there because I was on a trip in the 90s with a friend and we wanted to eat American food. <laughs> and so we went to the Hard Rock Cafe. So it totally worked. Whatever those two guys wanted in the 70s, that's exactly where we were at that moment. We wanted Mexican food and we got guacamole with ground pepper in it. And we went to the Hard Rock Cafe and we had an American burger and it was, you know, everything we dreamed it would be, I suppose. Hey, I understand the Hard Rock Cafe that whole like logo, the whole empire with all the restaurants and all the hotels and everything is now owned by the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Oh, and they also own the Mirage in Vegas. Wasn't that one of the um, one of the casinos that you could see in the first Colossal Man movie? Uh, yeah, but that was last episode, so I don't remember anymore. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. Hard Rock owns the Mirage now. Yeah, cool. I guess. Oh. But I think we need to have one more final factoid, which is basically just one more of those things we just did. That sounds awesome. Do you have one? Sure. There's one moment that I did a little bit of research into. There's a there's a quick scene during the short where you've got a bunch of horns sort of lying on top of each other, and it forms this very kind of curvaceous image of the round edges of the horns. And Joel says something he says in many episodes when he sees something curvaceous. He goes... Out of this unseemly, unfinished heat. Honey West! Oh my gosh, what is he referring to when he's talking about Honey West? Yeah, that's a great question. I thought always when I watched these episodes when I was a kid that he was talking about some famous stripper. Because it was always about like a sexy curvy woman showing up. <laughs> that's not the reference at all, it turns out. Oh, what is the reference then? Honey West, it turns out, is a crime drama. What? It's like a detective show what? from the, the mid-60s. It, it was on for one season. Okay. Like, she's a stripper, she solves crime? Is this all coming back to she solves crime? Kind of. Oh. It stars Anne Francis, who you might remember from Forbidden Planet. Nice. Okay. As the James Bond-esque Honey West, who goes around doing wild stuff and being sexy like while she do it. Oh. Just, just reading a bit from the Wikipedia article, Honey's alluring feline qualities were reflected in her animal print wardrobe and apartment decor. <gasps> Stop! <laughs> For sneaking around at night and engaging in energetic fight scenes, she wears a black fabric body stocking, reminiscent of Emma Peel's leather jumpsuit. Oh my gosh, it almost makes me wonder if the people who created Catwoman for Michelle Pfeiffer knew about this person. I mean, maybe, maybe. The other thing that I'll say about it is that one of the guest stars who appeared on Honey West, well, there were a few, of course, you know, TV shows are like that, Dick Clark, Bobby Sherman, etc. But one of them that I think we'd be particularly interested in was Joe Don Baker. <gasps> mama, Mama Mitchell. <laughs> yep. So, if you want to see a young Joe Don Baker. And who doesn't? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's an option. I, I... <laughs> if you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you knew your father, you did. Or if you'd like to ask us anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com. And we're technically still on Twitter for now at it is just a show. We'd love to hear from you.
This show is made possible by listeners like you and like our randomly selected supporter, Chris. Thank you, Chris. For as little as $1 an episode, you too can be like Chris and help us research and record this show. You can join us in a friendly Discord where we hang out and live stream our reactions to new episodes. And you can listen to all our super fan bonus bits. Find out more at itsjustashow.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash itsjustashow. And if you want to follow up on anything that was mentioned today, you'll find links in our show notes at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash 128. Where do we go from here, Chris? Well, we're going to turn from one of the most beloved shorts to one of the most beloved episodes of MST3K as we turn to Season 8, Episode 20, Space Mutiny. Okay, we, we've we had a lot of mixed feelings about Season 8, and, and none of our listeners will be surprised, of course, that, you know, the, the sci-fi era is, is not one that we're hugely familiar with, but this is, it, it's almost dangerous for you to say this is a most beloved episode, Chris. Yep, we have, on this show... Not enjoyed, very beloved episodes from the sci-fi era before, but we also have enjoyed them. Okay. Will we enjoy Space Mutiny or not? Tune in next time! <laughs> but until then... Oh, creeps. Polish, polish, polish. It's all I do. You got to inspect your horn, boy, and wash it every day. Take it away, theme squad.